Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the weather. Just the weather alone lifts our serotonin levels, I'm convinced. And so thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for your grace in our lives. Thank you that you have been so faithful to us through this particularly difficult season coming on the heels of Hurricane Harvey. I feel like this has been... Um, it's just not been this, as smooth as our semesters typically go. And yet you've been so incredibly faithful to all of us. And I, I'm grateful for that today, Lord. And I just ask, Lord, that you would come in power. Just for the next few minutes, would you speak a word to us and over us that would, would give us a handle, would give us something to hang on to and, and be reminded, Lord, that you're present and that you're good and that your truth is what sets us free. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let me just recap, because I know there's some of you that are here for the first time, which I love. Every single week, we always have brand new people, and that is a treat for us. So always remember to bring your friends, even if you feel like, well, we're nearing the end of the semester, just bring them, because we love to have them. Uh, we're in the middle of a seven-week series titled, I Am. We shifted focus after Har Harvey presented himself and changed the course or the direction of our study, and we shifted to I Am. I am, who is I am in the middle of a storm? We literally experienced Hurricane Harvey together. And many of us were coming in that first week with very shaky knees. We were wobbly. And in my mind and in my life, I knew if I'm gonna walk through this, and my footsteps are going to be steady. I need to know I am. I need to be reminded of the God that I follow. Who is his character? Who does he say that he is? And that, ladies, is our anchor when we're in the middle of a storm. So that's what brought birth this series for us. And um, so we've walked every for seven weeks, six weeks now. And we've really, our anchor passage has been Exodus 3 we started, but really Exodus 34 is where God has begun to describe who he is. If you remember in Exodus 3, God said, Moses, I've got a little mission for you. You are going to lead the Israelites out of slavery into freedom. They've been crying out to me. They've been begging for me to lead them to freedom. I've heard their cry and now the time has come to act. And so I want you to be their leader. And Moses was like, no, I don't want to do that. And then later he said, okay, I'll do that. But Lord, when I approach them and I begin to tell them, they're gonna ask me who sent me. So who shall I tell them sent me? And the Lord said, tell them I am sent you. I am sent you. And then we jump over to Exodus 34, Exodus 34, and they're in the middle of the journey, leaving slavery, moving toward the promised land, realizing that the journey toward freedom is not as smooth as they had hoped, or it certainly didn't meet their expectations. You know, if you're like me and I want God to fix something, change something or free something in my life, what I really mean when I pray that is I want him to do that and it's better. And I just want to wake up and it's all, it's all taken care of or I don't struggle with it anymore and it's all better and I don't want to feel any pain along the way. Well, they didn't either. But I wouldn't really trust the Lord that way. He would really just be my genie in a bottle. Christina Aguilera already wrote the song to that and so that's been done. And that's not what Yahweh is signing up for. He's saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. And I want you to know me and I want you to depend on me and I want you to trust me. And so as they're journeying to the promised land, Moses gets very tired of their complaining. He gets tired of the bitterness and he says, Lord, I need to see you. 
I can't go back. I can't do what you've asked me to do unless I engage with you, unless I can know that you're with me. And Moses answered his request and said, I mean, the Lord answered Moses' request and said, okay, come up to Mount Sinai and I'm gonna pass before you. And when he passed before Moses is when he began to describe to Moses who he was. And that's where we find Exodus 34. And I wanna read that again, because what we've done for the last six weeks is we've taken every characteristic line by line and we've unpacked it. And we're gonna do the same today. So let's look, I'm gonna start in verse five, but you've got your listening guides. Verse five of Exodus 34 says, then the Lord came down in a cloud and he stood there with Moses and he called out his own name, Yahweh, which also is translated, I am. The Lord passed in front of Moses calling out Yahweh, the Lord. Other translations will say Yahweh, Yahweh, or the Lord, the Lord. They mean the same thing. They also mean I am. He says, the first thing he says about himself is I'm the God of compassion and mercy. So I want us to remember that. Please don't ever forget that, is that God's baseline emotion toward all humankind is always mercy. Regardless if if men and women have come to place their trust in him or not, his baseline emotion toward those um, humans, all of us on this earth is always mercy. I'm the God of compassion and mercy. I'm slow to anger, slow to anger. And I'm filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I'm filled with it. Verse seven, he says, I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. Last week, this is where we camped. He said, and I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Now I wanna stop there for just a minute before we move on. He says, I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Last week, we talked about what those three mean. You can find that tape, that video on our website, yesministries.net. I would encourage you to go look at it. But when the Lord says, I forgive you, He doesn't, one, mean that's automatic. It's automatically offered, but it must be received for it to take hold in a person's life. But when he says, I forgive you, he's not saying, here's what happens is I just kind of give you a fist bump and say, I'm gonna overlook that. It's okay, now go on and do better next time. Forgiveness is huge. It's it's, um, multi-layered. But when the Lord forgives us, he forgives us for the penalty of sin, which is death. In Romans, it says the wages of sin is death. And we talked about that. But what he also does through forgiveness is he heals us. He begins to heal us. When I receive his forgiveness, it changes everything. And we talked about this last week is that Jesus did not come, his intention to come, the Father, God, did not send Jesus, God in human flesh, to be our moral police officer. His intention in sending Jesus was not to make bad people good people. His intention was to make dead people alive dead people alive. And so I I drew this last week and I wanna do it again because I think this is some uh, basic truth and understanding and theology that we've got to get or we'll continue to walk in our Christian life feeling that the only thing God cares most about is my performance. And that's not true. That's not true. And so we're made up of three parts. I shared this last week, our body, which is our physical part, our soul, which is our personality, our mind, will, and our emotions, and then our spirit. 
And our spirits are how we connect to God. And so when sin entered the picture back in Genesis 2 and 3, what happened when the Lord says, don't eat of that central tree of that fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, you'll surely die. What did he mean? He meant a spiritual death. There wasn't, I mean, physical death would now occur too, but he meant you'll be disconnected because I'm holy and you no longer, you're, you're now covered in sin. And so now you're disconnected. And so throughout scripture, you see that we are born dead in our transgressions. We are born dead in our sin. I talked about sin as a condition of your heart. Sins are the, are the um, results of our heart being covered in sin. And so we're darkened in our spirit. And so we might think, um, well, we do all sorts of things to try and get this remedied because we're born with a gaping hole needing to connect to our creator. We were born to be in connection with our creator. We should never feel guilty for wanting love, acceptance, security, purpose, understanding. Those are all things that are found in our creator, in a relationship with the God that created you. And so it's natural that you're born now going, okay, why am I here? Does anyone love me? Does it matter? And the Lord says, yes, and I want you back. So much so that I'm gonna be the atonement for sin. I'm gonna be the final payment for your sin. The wages of sin is death. And so when we place our faith in Jesus and receive his forgiveness, his spirit enters us and we become alive spiritually. We become alive. That's what it means when Jesus came to make dead people alive. We become alive. Our spirit becomes connected to Yahweh and the spirit, the Holy Spirit, lives inside me now. And so I understand scripture. I understand God speaking to me. I understand what it means to be comforted by the Holy Spirit in a way that I otherwise wouldn't understand. Because now I'm made alive through Christ, through Christ. And so all of this, we can see this, that the Lord has made a way because he's a merciful God. He forgives iniquity, rebellion and sin. But in the next line of Exodus 34, we find something that can be troubling or hard to swallow is that we find God to be a just God as well as a merciful God. And here's what's so important as believers. And, and even if you're not a believer, it's so important that we understand this about Yahweh is that he is merciful, but he's also just. And without mercy, with, uh, without mercy if you have just a just God, you've got a tyrant. But without justice and just a merciful God, you've got a weakling. I don't want either. And so there's a tension that's beautiful that exists in Yahweh. He's both merciful and just. And we see that on the cross. His mercy in the sense that he sent Jesus to be the final payment, the lamb of God, the atonement, the covering for my sin is merciful. It's an act of mercy. The justice is, is that he had to die. So justice would be paid. There had to be a payment and God made the payment himself. So you see justice and mercy aligned on a cross in Jesus. So we both serve a merciful and a just God. And so we see this in Exodus 34, at the end of verse seven, he says this, he says, but he's just said, I forgive iniquity, rebellion and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. 
I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The sins, notice that's plural. The sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected. Even children in the third and fourth generations. That is difficult for me. When I read this upon first reading, I'm like, ow, I don't like that. Can we just blot that one out? Because people may read that and be offended. Let's take that out of scripture and let's just focus on the top verses. Let's just end with forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Could we do that? Well, you can do that, but you won't be following Yahweh anymore. Yahweh says, I don't excuse the guilty. And what he means by that is that the day is coming where enough is enough. The day is coming where enough is enough. Have you ever awakened in the morning to troubling news like what happened in Las Vegas and you think enough is enough? Lord, when is enough enough? When do you come back? Have you ever awakened to horrible news about your own family? Maybe a health crisis, Hurricane Harvey, your house is flooded and you're displaced and you just recognize and it's in your face afresh, just this broken world in which we live, whether it's found through evil in people or, or just um, an earth that's troubled with hurricanes and earthquakes and all sorts or all sorts of, of troubling things that we endure. And have you ever said, oh Lord, when is enough enough? I certainly have. I certainly have. And what God is saying to us is I am just and there will be a day when enough is finally enough. But until then, I am a God that is slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, wishing that no one would perish. And so today I want us to unpack a little bit about what he actually means, what scripture really means when it says, I do not excuse the guilty and I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children to the third and fourth generations. That is difficult. But here's what I wanna say right off the bat is that what God is not saying and what he is not saying is Ben and Beth, my children will be held accountable for my sin. Ben and Beth will not be held accountable for my sin. But when the Lord says through scripture, the sins of the parents, that's the outlying effects will be laid on the children. It does mean that Ben and Beth might bear some of the consequences of my sins. My dysfunction, they're gonna, they're gonna reap some of that, right? You and I bear some of the consequences of our parents' sins. My parents bear the consequences of their parents' sins. There's patterns of behavior, patterns of dealing with each other, um, addiction, all sorts of things that can run through a family line for generations. And what that is, is it's the, the natural consequence that sin brings. My dad battled um, addiction. He battled alcoholism for a, a long, long time. That ran in his family. My brother does not drink because he is breaking a cycle in his family line. He does not want that laid upon his children. At least he wants to play no part in that. 
So his children have seen a dad that has said no to it and has been very, very forthright about why. And so Dan and Megan don't battle it. Dan and Megan have a framework about it that is different than Kern did. Kern made a decision, but do you see how it travels down? It travels down. Uh, it can go back to just, just fear. Just fear. I, I know my grandmother battled fear. She'd be gripped by fear. My mom has battled fear. I have battled fear. And I work on it. And I work and I'm cognizant of it with my daughter. Because it's something that I don't want to just naturally pass down because we never look at it full in the face. And that's what scripture's saying. But he says, I do not excuse the guilty. So what does he mean by that? I do not excuse the guilty. Well, I'm guilty all the time. I'm guilty of being late. I'm guilty of yelling at my kids. I'm guilty of all sorts of things. So when he says, I don't excuse the guilty, am I in trouble here? No, I'm not. When he says, I do not excuse the guilty, he is talking about men and women that have decided, I don't believe you, I don't trust you, I will not follow Yahweh, I don't want or need or choose forgiveness for my sin, I will make my own way. That's a choosing that they've made and that places them guilty in the sense that the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Now, because I've received Jesus death on the cross for my sin, I no longer worry about the wrath of God. I no longer worry about justice in that sense. I know when I die where I'm going. And it's not because I've been a good Christian. It's because the blood of Jesus shed for my sin covers me. And you know, you may have heard, what are you gonna say when you get to the pearly gates and Peter's there and, well, I don't know if Peter's gonna be there. Where does that say that Peter's the gatekeeper? Maybe he is. If he is, that's great. I'm looking forward to meeting Peter. But here's what I say. Why should I let you in, Laura? I'll tell you why you should let me in. No other reason than Jesus' blood covers me. That's it. The sacrifice has been made for my sin. And so, yes, do I, do I bear consequences when I'm late? Yes, I bear the, consequ the consequence because I may have missed the event or disappointed someone or what have you. You see what I mean. I still bear consequence of sin and I still am guilty, but it's a guilt of like, I'm sorry I did that. That was a mistake. Let me make that right. And then I go on. But I know no matter what, I am beloved in the Lord's eyes. And my sin is forgiven past, present, and future. And so the penalty for my sin has been dealt with. Now, the consequences, if I derail and decide I'm just gonna have an affair and forget it all, you better believe I'm gonna deal with the consequence of that. It's gonna wreck my home. It's gonna wreck my kiddos. And I'm gonna work on repairing that and going forth. But I'll bear the consequences of it. Can I get forgiveness? You better believe it. Is God a redeeming God? You better believe it. You better believe it. Thank goodness. But will there be consequences? For sure. For sure. So I want us to unpack a little bit more of what this looks like 
Let me give you a couple scriptures before we move on because I, I want to make sure that we understand correctly when he says, I don't excuse the guilty, that our kids are not held accountable for our sin. In Deuteronomy 24, 16, it says, parents must not put to death for this, parents must not be put to death for the sins of their children, nor children for the sins of their parents. Those deserving to die must be put to death for their own crimes. What he's saying is everyone is accountable. So Beth and Ben, eventually someday, hopefully this day has already come, they get to decide who they follow. And their faith at some point has to become their own. Just because mama followed Jesus doesn't ensure that they will. And so at some point, Ben and Beth have to decide, I need and want that blood covering for my sin. I pray that my kids come into relationship with Jesus from the time they were in the womb. Both of them have professed faith in Jesus on their own accord. And I'm so grateful for that. And here's the thing. I know some of us in the room have grown children that are far away from the Lord and it grieves us as mamas. Don't stop praying for them. Don't stop praying for them. The Lord's arm is so long and we'll see that in just a second. But every one of us, every one of us has the freedom to choose who we follow. All right, and then um, in Jeremiah 32, 18, it says, you show unfailing love to thousands, but you also bring the consequences of one's generation's sin upon the next, the consequence, not the penalty, but the consequence of it. All right, I want us to see this. It's gonna come alive in Numbers 14. And uh, if you will, you've got it on your listing guide, but I wanna give you a little bit of backdrop first about Numbers 14. What happened here? is like I said earlier, when we pick up the story or started I am in Exodus three, the Israelites had been crying out to Yahweh, save us, lead us to freedom. We're so tired of being enslaved to the Egyptians and they were enslaved to the Egyptians. And that's a good picture for our own enslavement to sin. When we are born, we are born as slaves to sin, meaning we have one way of thinking. Scripture says that throughout that we were enslaved to sin. And when we come into relationship with Christ, the power of that enslavement is broken. Do we still sin? Yes. Do we now have a choice not to and an empowerment that lives inside of us? You better believe it. But the Israelites have been like, save us, save us, Yahweh, save us. And he says, okay, I've heard their cry. Let's go, Moses. We're gonna lead them to freedom. They start on the journey and the journey is uncomfortable. They don't like the food that they've been given to eat. They do not like the beds on which they sleep. They don't like the, ter the terrain on which they walk. They are cranky, stiff-necked, and throughout the journey, they refuse to trust Yahweh. And they say, send us back. Just send us on back to Egypt. That'd be better than this. That would be better than this. Even though the Lord has promised to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. I promise I'm gonna lead you to freedom. He made a covenant with them. Didn't matter, wasn't enough. They're walking in every difficult circumstance was more affirmation that they should not trust Yahweh in their mind. So here's where we pick up the story. They have made this trek. They are on the banks of the Jordan River. On the other side of the Jordan River lies Canaan the land flowing with milk and honey. They arrive and Moses sends out some spies to go check out the land, come back and give a report. They go and every one of the spies, except for two came back 
paralyzed with fear and said, okay, we just walked in and that land is possessed by a mean group of people and they look really, really big and they look really, really mean. And once again, Yahweh is gonna lead us all the way here just to let us die by these people. We should have never trusted him. We can't do it. We can't do it. We can't go farther. Caleb and Joshua were two of the spies and they came back and they were like, Okay, there are big people, but you can't even imagine the fruit. You can't even imagine the plush grass. It's amazing. It's gonna be amazing. It's literally flowing with milk and honey. And this is where we pick up because the loudest voices were the voices of doubt. The loudest voices were the voices of fear. And here's what happened. Numbers chapter 14, verse one, it says, then the whole community, the whole community began weeping aloud at this report of fear. And they cried all night and they cried all night. Their voices rose in a great chorus of protest against Moses and Aaron. Here's what they said, y'all. If only we had died in Egypt or even here in the wilderness, just kill us now. They complained, why is the Lord taking us to this country only to have us die in battle? Our wives and our little ones will be carried off as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to return to Egypt? Then they plotted among themselves, let's choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. Don't judge them, I've been them. Here's what happened. A few people came back in a frenzy and the whole community became frenzied. Ever been there? Can you relate to that at all? The loudest voices will take us down. And here's the truth about fear. Fear has a freezing agent in it. And when I experience the emotion of fear, I can easily and quickly become frozen or at least feel like I'm frozen. And I think, oh, I don't wanna go farther. I don't wanna go farther. But in that moment, that real emotion, I have a choice. Am I gonna believe Yahweh or am I not going to believe Yahweh? And if I believe Yahweh, I'm gonna step closer toward him and I'm gonna go, this feels scary, but I believe you've told me to do it. I'm gonna keep doing it. And as I walk in truth and as I walk toward him and remind myself who he is, the freezing agent begins to melt and the fear subsides and I get a handle on my emotions. I don't ever allow my emotions to be the front of the train. They're not the conductor, they're the caboose. And so the conductor is Yahweh. And so when I start to feel afraid, I get to go, wait a second, who's leading this train? Yahweh, what do I know about Yahweh? He's faithful, he's merciful. He's got a plan for my life. He's gonna, never gonna leave me or forsake me. He's told me to do this. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this. Okay, I don't feel quiet. That wasn't as scary as I thought it was gonna be. And then the emotions catch up on the caboose. The Israelites had it flipped. Their emotions dictated everything. Yahweh's back in the caboose. Their emotions are leading the train and they're wanting Yahweh to get up here and um, jump through their hoops based on how they feel at the moment. We don't really feel like eating manna. We'd, re we'd, ha we'd rather have quail. That's literally what they said in the wilderness. We want quail. Quail tastes better. And so the Lord said, okay, I'm gonna give you quail. And he poured down so many quail, so much quail, they choked on it because that's what they thought they needed. 
I really need this. If you would do that, then one, you prove to me that you're good. And two, I get what I want. And God has said throughout scripture, here's the deal. I don't need a co-pilot. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's how it works. I hate that sometimes. (laughs) Everything in me, it feels like, wants that not to be true. But the truest part of me, the spirit that is inside me, that rests inside me, always is going to agree with the truth. And the truth is, I really do want him to be my God. I really do want his way over my own. My emotions are just louder. They're louder. And so these folks are in a frenzy. They've said, if we just died in Egypt or even just kill us now. And then they've just concluded the Lord's character. Why is he taking us to this country only to have us die in battle? Life is so unpredictable. It's just too exhausting for me to determine if Yahweh is good or not based upon my circumstances. I'll never get off that roller coaster and I will continually be exhausted and eventually I'll just walk away. So fear is freezing, but when it's rooted in unbelief, it's paralyzing. It's paralyzing when it's rooted in unbelief. And the Israelites, their fear was rooted in unbelief. Unbelief that Yahweh is in fact good, that he is in fact faithful, that he is in fact working something together in my life that's gonna bless me. And that unbelief will kill us. That unbelief is toxic. That unbelief is sin. That unbelief is what eventually will be my demise. And so in verse five, it says, then Moses and Aaron fell face down on the ground before the whole community of Israel. They're so tired of these people. Six, it says, two of the men who had explored the land, Joshua and Caleb, tore their clothing. And they said to all the people of Israel, listen, the land that we traveled through and explored is a wonderful land. And if the Lord is pleased with us, he's gonna bring us safely into that land and give it to us. Why? Because he'd already promised that. It is a rich land flowing with milk and honey. Then they beseech the people, do not rebel against the Lord. And don't be afraid of the people of the land. They're only helpless prey to us. They have no protection, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. When I believe the truth about Yahweh, it frames how I see everything else in my life. It is the lenses through which I view every circumstance. We talked about that a few weeks back. When I really believe the truth that he is good, he is for me, he loves me, he's got a plan in my life that he's working out for good. When I believe that, that his promises really are promises, It changes the way I view everything. And so the giants before me, it's not that there won't be giants, there will be, but I view them differently because I know who fights for me. I know who leads me. It's Yahweh, it's I am. And so, yeah, there do happen to be some some giants, but they are merely prey to us. They are merely, they're nothing, they're a gnat. I'm an overcomer because Yahweh is with me. I'm his. So I view, sometimes I view my life like I'm walking around with this bubble, like the bubble boy, this bubble over me. And it's the Holy Spirit, it's the protection. I'm hemmed in behind and before. And sometimes when I'm particularly afraid, I'll, I'll envision that, that I'm walking into this whatever situation is and I'm so protected that I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be afraid. And that protection is Yahweh. Caleb and Joshua understood that. They got that. 
And they're trying to tell this unbelieving group of people, their friends and their family, believe that too. Believe it too. And I love that. Don't give up on your friends. Don't give up on your loved ones. You keep telling them the truth and you keep getting on your knees and asking God to make it real for them. Caleb and Joshua said, don't be afraid. Trust him. He's worth it. He's worth it. He's worth it. Verse 10, it says, but the whole community began to talk. Stop right there. The whole community began to talk. It will always be easy for you and for me to find a group of unbelieving people that will get in that pit with us. They will love it. They're like, my precious. Yes, yes, you're struggling. You're mad at your husband. Let me sit there with you for a minute. Yes, oh, yes. Oh, she's awful. I can't believe she said that to you. Let's talk a little bit more. You know what I'd do? I'd go right back up to that carpool line. I'd give her a piece of your mind. That's what I'd do. Do you see what I'm saying? Those voices get so loud. And when you're afraid, just look at our political climate in our world right now. It takes one person to say something or to post something. And it's just this frenzy, this wildfire lights up. The whole community began to talk. At that point, I bet Caleb and Joshua were like, Moses and Aaron fell face down. There is power in a group of voices. There is power and that power can be destructive. And so here's what I always tell my kids. I want you to be friends with everybody. I want you to be kind to everyone, but I want you to pick your Friday night friends very carefully, very carefully, very carefully. I have a lot of friends. I have been super blessed with a lot of men and women and children in my life that I love and adore. But my Friday night foxhole friends, that number, it's a pretty small, tight circle. Those are the three o'clock AM friends that you call when you're in a crisis. And the reason I call them is because one, I know that they're gonna be there. But two, I also know that they love Jesus and they're gonna speak the truth to me. And they're gonna pray for me. When I feel... Um, like I'm having a bad hair day, I know exactly who I can call that'll say, oh gosh, girl. And that can be true for me in any situation. I know there are certain people I could call and they're gonna tell me what I wanna hear. Because in that moment, I don't really know, wanna know that my hair's frizzy. I want you to tell me it's beautiful. I don't wanna really know that this haircut's bad or these jeans make my butt look big. I don't really wanna know that. I just want you to say, nobody's cuter than you. Melanie Schenkel said that in her book. I love it. Or she titled her book that way. So there's always going to be people in your life that will tell you. They'll prop you up. They'll tell you what you want to know. And all the while, it could be leading to your destruction. And so make sure, girls, that we know who our inner circle is and that those women love Jesus more than they love me. Because they'll love me most effectively when they follow him first. And they'll say, those are crazy thoughts, Laura. I think you're derailing. I think it's time to get to a counselor's office. Or yes, it, you're, you've, you're so long overdue for a haircut. Love you. I love you. Cut it. Foxhole friends. 
I tell my kids, your Friday night friends, the whole community began to talk about stoning Joshua and Caleb, their own people. Then the glorious presence of the Lord appeared to who? To just Joshua and Caleb? Nope, he appeared to all the Israelites. All the Israelites. God's presence will appear to all men. Scripture says, even the rocks cry out. There will not be anyone on earth when enough is finally enough that has not been made aware of who Yahweh is. I can rest in that. I don't know how he does it, but he does it because he tells me he does it in scripture. The glorious presence appears to all men. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? Another translation says, how long will they not believe me? That word is translated unbelief. It says, will they never believe me even after all the miraculous signs I have done among them? Even after all the miraculous signs, y'all, he literally parted the Red Sea in front of them, in front of them. All of a sudden, the Red Sea, there's a dry path. How does that happen? Yahweh made it happen. Okay, now we get to walk in our, our pant legs don't get wet and that's good, but I still don't like this manna. I still would rather have quail. Zero gratitude will make a heart toxic. It says then, um, the Lord then says, we start to see the Lord has had enough. He says in verse 12, I will disown them and destroy them with a plague. Then I'll make you into a nation greater and mightier than they are. They've never believed him. They've never really trusted him. They wanted freedom more than they wanted Yahweh. And then they got into the journey toward freedom and they realized they really wanted comfort more than they wanted Yahweh. Even if comfort meant enslavement. Oh man, that'll that'll speak to me all day long. Yes, I do wanna be well, but I don't really wanna be well. I'd really rather sit in this dysfunction because I don't have to do anything about it. I don't have to change. I don't have to really get help. I don't really have to be honest. And even though it's toxic, it's still somewhat comfortable. And the Lord says, I will disown. Another translation says, I will disinherit them. Verse 17, we skip down and we see Moses crying out. And he says, please, Lord, prove that your power is as great as you have claimed. For you said, Lord, that the Lord is slow to anger and filled with unfailing love, forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion. You said that, Lord, but he does not excuse the guilty. He lays the sins on the parents upon their children. The entire family's affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. He's praying scripture back to the Lord. This is what you said. And he's doing it because he wants the Lord to pardon them. Verse 19, he says, in keeping with your magnificent, unfailing love, please, Lord, pardon the sins of this people, just as you have forgiven them ever since they left Egypt. Don't smite them right here, Lord. Please, God. This is where I go back to don't ever stop praying for your friends and loved ones that are outside the faith. Don't stop praying for them. The effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much, James chapter five. Don't stop, you sweet mothers who have been grieved over your children. Don't stop praying. My most powerful weapon is prayer, always in any situation, but particularly for my kids because they're my jugular. That's what could take me under because I love them so irrationally. 
I want to fix everything in their life. And while fixing everything in their life might absolutely destroy them, I get on my knees. I get on my knees and the Lord begins to speak to me about my kids. He begins to enlighten me about what he's doing. And he just begins to settle my heart. I'm their God. You're not their God, Laura. I've got them. Don't stop praying because Moses was able to engage with the Lord. And the Lord says this in verse 20. He says, then the Lord said, I will pardon them as you have requested. The baseline emotion of God, our father is always mercy. Even to the stiff necked group of people, even to me, always mercy. Do I deserve it? No, none of us do. That's not the point. The point is, is that we don't mercy, not getting what I do deserve. I will pardon them as you've requested. Verse 21, but as surely as I live and as surely as the earth is filled with the Lord's glory, none, not one of these people will ever enter that land. That's the consequence of their unbelief. They have all seen my glorious presence and the miraculous signs I performed both in Egypt and in the wilderness. But again and again, they have tested me by refusing to listen to my voice. They've refused Refused. They've not stumbled. They've refused. Have I missed his voice? Have I stumbled? Have I battled with doubt? You better believe it. That's really, for me, what it means to walk with Jesus. It means to continually stumble forward. That's not what God is saying. They have continually refused to listen. They have refused to trust. They have refused to believe him. Continually. Continually, the Lord is slow to anger, not wanting anyone to perish. They have continually, continually, even though he's performed miraculous signs, he's made himself known. They have refused to listen. That is the difference. That is what guilty means. I don't want to be alive. I want to stay in my own way of thinking. I want to stay in my own seemingly sense of control. I want to stay calling the shots. I want to be my own God. And I will define who God is. And that may change with the wind, but I get to be the one that says so. He says, I'll pardon them, but as surely as the day is long, they're not entering that land. They have all seen my glorious presence. They have refused to listen to my voice. Verse 23, it says, "Then they, they, so they will never see the land that I swore to give their ancestors. None of those who have treated me with contempt will ever see it. But listen, verse 24, but my servant Caleb has a different attitude than the others have. A different spirit is also seen in scripture, a different spirit. Ru'ah, a different spirit, the spirit of the living God. Caleb got it. Caleb believed God. He has remained loyal to me, so I will bring him into the land he explored. Later, you see that he brings Joshua also. His descendants will possess their full share of that land. Verse 28, he says, now tell them this, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very things I heard you say. What did we see them say earlier? Just kill us here. We would have been better off to have died in Egypt or even right here. God is not faithful to us. You said it, you refused to believe me, here it comes. But he didn't smite him right then. 
He says, you will all drop dead in this wilderness because you complained against me, every one of you who is 20 years old or older and was included in the registration will die. Those accountable. You will not enter and occupy the land that I swore to give you. The only exceptions will be Caleb and Joshua. In verse 31, he says, you said your children would be carried off as plunder. You said that I don't care about your kids. You said that I won't take care of you. You said your children will be carried off as plunder. The Lord says, well, I will bring them safely into the land, their kids, and they will enjoy what you have despised. But as for you, you will drop dead in this wilderness. The children are not held accountable for their parents' sin. Do you see that? Critical. But you, those accountable, you'll die in this wilderness, just like you said. And your children will be like shepherds wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. In this way, they will pay for your faithlessness, your faithlessness until the last of you lies dead in the wilderness. What is the Lord doing? He's allowing an entire generation to die off before he leads the fresh new generation into the promised land because this first generation would not believe him. They refused to believe him. The Lord is not a God that twists my arm into believing him. The Lord does not demand my love. And that's what it means to be guilty. I don't want your love. I don't need your forgiveness. I don't want to be made alive. I don't want or need Yahweh. Okay. They died in the wilderness and the children bore the brunt. The sins were laid on their laps. Sins, plural, the outcome, the consequences of it were laid in their lap because they had to wait 40 years before they got into the, will, to the promised land. They bore the weight, the sin of their parents. They didn't die, they weren't killed, they, didn't, they weren't held accountable for it, but they bore the brunt. Here's what's critical for you and me. We leave a legacy, even if you don't have biological offspring, we all leave a legacy behind. What's it gonna be when I look back? Are my children, what am I laying in their laps? Am I laying a legacy of faith? As imperfect as it may be, will they know that their mother loved the Lord? Or am I leaving a legacy of dysfunction that I just refuse to get well? I refuse to change the course, I refused. Which will it be? I get to decide that, you get to decide that. And here's the beautiful thing, God is not asking for perfection from me. He is not needing me to be a good little girl. God is simply saying, will you trust me? Will you trust me? It's not always gonna be easy, Laura, but will you trust me? I remember when I was a little girl growing up and my parents divorced and my mom had to go back to work and she was a single mother struggling to make ends meet, struggling to buy our prom dresses. I remember in particular one season and there was a statement on our refrigerator that she had handwritten and it said, I don't know who holds my future, but I know, I don't know what my future holds, but I know who holds my future. And I remember as a little girl watching my mom stumble forward in faith. 
I knew that my mother prayed for me. She prayed many boyfriends out of my life. She was on her knees for her children. She was a woman that was not perfect, but she stumbled forward in faith. And I'm here because of that. I'm part of her legacy. What will Ben and Beth see from their mother? Will they see the same? You better believe it as far as I can tell. If I'm breathing, I want them to know I love him. I love him. I love him. He's worth it. He's worth it. I will say yes. Will you say yes? It's simple. Will you say yes? Will you believe him? I'm starting to preach. Will you believe him? Yes. What is the alternative? What is the alternative that you get to decide how you're going to spend your money and that feels really good? Or you get to decide how you're going to treat your cranky husband and that feels really good? I don't have to forgive. I don't have to surrender. Y'all, it's not. It's toxic. And the enemy will tell you it's worth it though. It feels good right now. Do it. He's not worth it. It feels good. Eat that fruit. Will you stumble forward with me? Will you stumble forward with this board of yes ministries? Will you do it? Yes, you will. There's not a better alternative. Walk with him. Walk with him. Say yes. Don't stress out that those coming up behind you are going to see an imperfect woman. Boy, my kids, they're going to need counseling. You better believe it. They will. But as far as it rests with me, they're going to see a mom and a dad that said, we love him. We're saying yes to him. We're going to follow him no matter what, no matter what. And when we're hurt and we're wounded, we're going to forgive we're going to do it. Why? Because Yahweh tells us to, and Yahweh is worth it. He is worth it. I pray that I go to my grave saying that, and I pray that you do too. Let me pray for us or I'll continue on forever. Oh my goodness. I'm so sorry. Lord, thank you. Thank you, Yahweh. We love you. We love you. And I thank you that you tell us that for even for those of us, we will struggle with uh, unbelief at times. We will struggle, but you've assured us in Mark chapter nine, that sweet father that said, I believe, help me with my unbelief. We are covered by the blood of Jesus. And so you've got grace for us that abounds in our weakness. Thank you, Lord. Would we be women that mess, that we're messy, Lord, but, but let us be women that stumble forward. Make that true in our lives, Jesus for your glory and our benefit. Amen. Amen. Amen.